Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from San Philip United Methodist Church in San Philip, Texas. Uh, I bring you greetings on a beautiful Independence Day. And uh, as uh, we gather and we begin this morning, let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to see another Independence Day. We never would have made it without you. May you continue to bless us and bless America with the freedom that only you can bring. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series called The Battle. And the battle that we're talking about is the battle against sin. And so uh, here's our scripture lesson. It's found in uh, the, uh, uh, the book of uh, Romans, the sixth chapter, the 11th through the 14th verses. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Here we have four verses from the Apostle Paul, and the word sin is mentioned in each verse. As you look through the Bible, you will see that directly or indirectly, nearly every page refers to sin. It's something that's so important to God, and it's important to God because it's important to us. I mentioned in passing last week that uh, the Lord gave me a foretaste of just what sin was like, what it's really like, and what it really does. And uh, I would like to just go into that in a little more detail at this time. Because, you see, before I became a Christian, uh, there was a time when I began to have horrible dreams. They were so horrible, I hated to go to sleep at night. And the theme of these dreams was that there was something evil pursuing me. And many times it couldn't be seen. And when it could be seen, sometimes it would, it would take the, the form of one thing or another. Uh, sometimes it might be a just hideous burglar in my room at night whenever I was trying to go to sleep. Other times it might be uh, some creature that had me cornered in a cave, or it may be something uh, chasing me through the woods uh, on a dark, dark night where I couldn't see where I was going. But there was always this sense of darkness, and there was this sense of something evil trying to take me over. And this, this thing, whatever it was, whatever form it took, it was like death personified. It was like cancer 
having taken on some sort of form to where if it ever got you, it was going to kill you slowly forever. It's the most desolate thing that you could ever think of. And after I came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, he let me know that that is what sin is really like. Sin is connected to death. We kind of wink at little peccadillos and uh, you'll see some people that are trying to argue for different sins and sinful lifestyles to be considered all right. But I can never go there because I have tasted of the horror of sin and the stench of death that surrounds it. And if you participate in it in any way, you are participating in eternal death. Now last week, from these verses, we described the battleground of, 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 uh, of sin in our own personal lives and in our own bodies and the participants in this struggle. And in review, here's what we saw about the battleground. First, there is a throne or a reign. Verse 12 says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Next, in verse 12, it says there's a challenger to the throne, and that throne is sin. Do not let sin reign. Do not allow sin to reign. And then again in verse 12, we see there is a castle where sin threatens to reign, and that is the human body, your body. Sin wants to rule. Sin wants to reign. And then there are loyal servants in the castle. However, they may go over to the other side and join the conspiracy as enemy agents inside the walls of the castle. And these are our desires. Now, verse 12 says that there is, we see in, again, and the fifth thing we see is there is partial surrender possible in this conflict going on. Obedience to disloyal desires, that is surrender to sin. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Moving on to verse 13, uh, point number six, there is a true king on the throne who uh, has the reign in the castle, and that is God. He is the rightful ruler of the castle. And then next in verse 13, we see that there are weapons in the castle that can be used to advance the cause of the true king, God, or the cause of the pretender to the throne, sin. And those are the members or the parts of the body. And then in verse 14, we see that there is a constitutional authority in the kingdom, grace, not law. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And then we saw how the enemy does battle. Sin is the enemy, the rebellious contender to the throne. And the main way that sin does battle against us is to turn servants into traitors. It turns our desires into conspirators against the throne. Desires 
which were appointed by God to serve us, to be good things in our lives, like the desire for food, the desire for drink, the desire for sex, the desire for rest, the desire for friends, the desire for approval. These are all attacked by sin and captured and corrupted and turned into betrayers. Judas desires, Delilah desires, and then these desires, now in the service of sin instead of God, lure us to obey them. And when that happens, we hand over our members, our eyes, our ears, our tongue, our hands, our feet, our sexual organs, vocal cords, all of them, to serve these desires and their master, sin. And our members become weapons of unrighteousness. In my past, in a prior profession, I would often investigate claims where an employee had stolen money from their employer. And I began to notice something. You could have the you could have two people whose backgrounds were the same, exactly, set in the same circumstances, all things being equal as far as background, upbringing, etc. And some of these employees would rather die than steal, while others would rather steal than go to any inconvenience whatsoever. Some would steal, some would never steal. And I found this a mystery because I, at that point in time, I thought we were all just products of hereditary or heredity and environment. And I began to see that there was a force beyond external forces and uh, things that we had been trained in. That we all have a compass within us, a moral compass within, that steers us either to choose what is right or what is expedient, regardless of whether it was right or wrong. You see, it was more than just heredity and environment. Ultimately, on the throne of the human heart is either God or our desires. The one you treasure most, the one you value most, pleasing God or pleasing your desires, determines which way your moral compass points and that is going to determine whether you spend your life in heaven or in hell. Sin deceives us by making obedience to our desires seem very rewarding, and it tries to make you know that even if it's got something bad at the end, God will forgive us and we'll find a way out. It gives us half-truths. It'll feel good, and obeying desires does feel good, but only for a short time. When then later comes the misery and the destruction. That's why Hebrews 11.25 refers to the fleeting pleasures of sin. These compromised desires are very deceitful and can convince you even that God thinks that they're okay and they're not. Ephesians 4.22 says that our old man is corrupted by the desires of deceit. 1 Peter 1.14 refers to the desires of your former ignorance. Sin takes our desires and makes liars out of them. They promise satisfaction and happiness and they deliver cheap, 
fleeting, shallow stimulation that leaves us less content and less peaceful and less hopeful and more guilty and more restless and more discouraged and more enslaved. In the end, if we don't fight the way that this text tells us to, we may be cut off from God in hell. He doesn't want that to happen to you. I do not want that to happen to you. Nobody really wants that. And that's why 621, Romans 6.21 says, the outcome of those things is death. And that's why 1 Peter 2.11 says, abstain from fleshly desires which wage war against your very soul. There is a war for the soul going on. Sin is fighting for the throne of your soul. It is using your desires as betrayers, and it is turning your members into weapons of unrighteousness. And remember, everything that God offers you, everything God commands is good. And he has a good way for your desires to be met, a good way for your desires to be satisfied as opposed to the sinful way that keeps trying to get you to yield. Just in case you have in your uh, mind here only the so-called gross sins like drunkenness or fornication or adultery or stealing or murder, keep this in mind. The book of James says that the most deadly member of our body, the most deadly weapon of unrighteousness, is our tongue. He says the tongue is a small part of the body. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles our entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And if you'll listen to all the rhetoric going on in politics and uh, in all sorts of different areas right now, you can see the deadliness of the tongue. This is what happens when sin perverts our desires so that we present our tongues to these traitorous desires as a weapon of unrighteousness. What a weapon of destruction it can be. So this battle strategy is for everyone here, not just for uh, someone else that you might point your finger at. And so what I want to go over today is how do we fight this battle? Romans 6, 11 through 14 teaches us how to battle with sin and to win. First, remember the five chapters of God. Uh, uh, remember, the first five chapters of Romans uh, are on God, sin, and justification. All these have gone before chapter 6. Paul does not teach us how to do battle with sin until we have learned how Christ has done battle with sin first and done what we could not do and what the law could not do and what you will never to be able to do, you will never be able to do this on your own. This is astonishing for us pragmatic Americans. Five chapters 
to help us see why justification by faith is essential as a foundation for doing battle with sin. You see, no one can fight sin successfully until they know their sin is truly forgiven. The only sin that you can triumph over in practice is a sin that Christ has died for. If he had not died to take away our condemnation, we could make no progress at all in sanctification. He had to die for our sins. Our sins are the only way for us to receive salvation. You'll see there's a new pack, a picture hanging on my wall back here. It's a picture of Jesus as he's bowing in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is praying. He is praying so hard that if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. And apparently his heavenly Father said, Son, there's no other way for sin to be beat. You must go to the cross. Because Jesus got up from there and he went and he bled and he died for your sins and my sins. There is no other way. And that is one of the reasons why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You cannot handle your sin on your own, but Jesus has made a way where you cannot make a way. And so I encourage you, listen closely to what I have to say today, because the words that I share with you are the words of life and death. There are six parts are elements to being victorious in our battle against sin. And every one of them is essential. You can't pick and choose a few of these. You can't pick just the number one. You've got to pick all six. They all come together as a package, but they are prioritized, and I'm going to give them to you in the order of priority. First, appropriate personally the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sin. Jesus Christ died for your sin. That is what I'm reminded of every time I see that picture. And I hope that every time you think of him, you'll remember he didn't just die to get you off the hook. He died in your place. And if you don't receive, if you don't appropriate the fact that he suffered because of you and accept his suffering on your behalf as being suffering in your place, as him suffering in your place and receiving your punishment, then you can have no part in him and he can have no part in you because it all begins by the faith of receiving what he did for you personally on the cross. Christ shed his blood so that God's, that God's wrath would be propitiated. It's a hard word, propitiated. That is satisfied, paid for, appeased, taken away. Romans 5, 8, 9 says it this way. God demonstrates his own love toward us 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is number one in our battle against sin. Never think that you can skip it. You have to realize that unless you receive personally what Jesus did on the cross for your sin, you cannot be saved from the wrath of God. If you try to skip this, Satan will defeat you with a hopeless and a guilty conscience. And if you have been living with a, a hopeless and a guilty conscience, then I have good news for you. You can be forgiven. Just receive what he did on the cross for you. Exchange life for life. Give him your sinful life and receive the new life that he offers to you. The next element in this battle, accept the fact that you died and rose with Christ. Number Element number two is that when Christ died and rose again, you died and rose again. Or to be more precise, God viewed you as united with Christ so that his execution for sin became your execution, and his reward with resurrection became your reward. Romans 6, 6 says, Our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8 says, We have died with Christ. These two elements, these first two elements of defeating sin in our lives happened historically outside ourselves before we were even born. It's a part of history, and yet it is a part of your history. The third element is we need to realize that we have become united with Christ. God united us with Christ by faith. Now this is the application to us of what was accomplished for us on the cross, and in the life of Jesus. In Romans 6, 5, we read, We have become united with him in the likeness of his death. And how does this happen? Paul answers in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, But by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. God grafted us into Christ. What was our part? Faith in Christ. Looking on what he has done and what he is and what he promises to do and receiving that as a free gift, as our treasure in life, as the pearl of great price as the treasure that's in the field that's worth so much, we will give up everything else to have it. Element number four, rest in the fact that God justifies us. God justifies us by this faith because we are united with Christ. He forgives all our sins and imputes to us the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As God reckoned Christ to be sinful, though he was righteous, so he reckons us to be righteous even though we're sinful. And he does this because we are in Christ. So far then, element number one, Christ died for our sins. Element number two, we died with him. Element number three, God united us to Christ through our faith, through receiving what Jesus did for us. Element number four, God justifies us because of our reunion with Christ. He counts our sins as punished in Christ and Christ's righteousness as credited to us. All that precedes the command of Romans 6.11, that is the difference between Christianity and every other religion and every other moral improvement program. Element number five, consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, in element number five in the battle with sin, and it's easy, it's really an extension of the faith in element number four. Element number five is a mental and volitional act preceding direct engagement with temptation. And it's found in Romans 6.11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> now notice two things about this. First of all, it's something you do with your reason and your will. You reckon something to be so. The even so at the beginning of the verse refers back to verse 10 where Paul said, Christ died to sin and lives to God. Even so, Paul says, as you have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, even so, bring your mind and will into alignment with this. Think this way. Know yourself this way. Count this to be the truth about yourself. You died and you rose with Christ Jesus. Now next, notice that this deadness to sin and life to God is in Christ. Paul is pointing you still to a reality about you that is the objective and external it is objective and external to yourself. In the element of verse 11, your death to sin and life to God is not yet something in experience. It is something that you have to receive by faith before the experience can really start to happen. Paul is saying, first, bring your mind and heart into alignment with all that objective reality in the first four steps. Christ died for you. You died in him. You were united with him. 
by God's doing through faith. You were justified. Now, think this way. Know yourself this way. Seize this reality as to who you truly are. Welcome and embrace this work of God and all it means for you as your treasure in life. Your treasure is where your heart will be. Where's your treasure? Let's move on to number six. Now here is the direct engagement with temptation in element six. When sin sends deceitful Judas desires to tempt you to present your bodies as weapons of unrighteousness, to be used against you, to bring about your destruction. Stand loyal to your true and loving ruler, God. Notice the therefore at the beginning of verse 12. Therefore, do not let, do not allow sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. The active engagement of our will now in verse 12 comes after and is based on all the other elements that we have from God. The bumper sticker and the t-shirt morality that says, just say no, is not Christian. You don't just say no. Five great and wondrous things have preceded and undergirded and enabled us to just say no. But saying no is element number six. You have to do it to win the battle. Say no. When sin attacks with the Judas desire of lust, say no. When he attacks with the Judas desire of covetousness, covetousness say no. When he attacks with the desire of alcohol or nicotine or marijuana or crack, just say no. When sin attacks with the desire for retaliation or gossip, say no. So you see right here at this point, there is real engagement of our will. We must choose to say no. But it's not we just choose to say no. We choose to say no with a faith that is undergirded by all that has gone on before. There's one more thing to stress about this last element. Verse 12 says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Notice that sin is attacking through desires, betraying desires, desires that are uh, working against us. And we are called to choose against those desires. We're chose to not obey those desires, to not allow, to not let sin reign. Don't present your eyes, don't present your tongue to fulfill that desire. Don't choose those desires. 
Now let's talk about what choosing is. Choosing, if you stop and think about it, is preferring. To choose is to prefer one thing over another thing. There's always at least two things for you to have a choice. To choose one is to prefer that one over the other. If God is to get glory in our choosing against sin, it must be because we regard God and who He is and His promises as preferable to sin. Choosing is finding one thing preferable to another thing. So you can describe the battle at this point in these negative terms. Say no to the traitorous desires of sin on the basis of what God has done and who you are in Christ. You are dead to sin and to its desires. And whenever you were baptized, that was what was symbolized, was you're dying to sin and dying to self and just living for yourself and your desires and living to God. And these things, after you have uh, chose to be dead to sin and its desires, they don't, they don't look preferable. Or you can describe this battle in positive terms. When sin sends uh, his traitorous desires to tempt you, prefer God and his work and his ways and his promises. The choice is there. You can make the right choice or you can make the wrong choice. And remember, you're not just choosing pleasure at the moment. You're choosing heaven or hell at the moment. Resolve to see God and what he has for you as preferable to the fleeting pleasures of sin. You are alive to God and he looks preferable. If Satan attacks with deceitful desires, counter with reliable desires that will not let you down and that will lead to everlasting joy. God always has alternatives to what Satan presents and what he tries to bring you to through sin. In other words, the frontline battle against sin, which glorifies God, is based on what he has done for us in Christ to forgive all our sins and to count us righteous in him. And it's fought by experiencing death to sinful desires and life to newness, to, to, I'm sorry, uh, death to sinful desires and life to new desires, new preferences, choosing God and his way. Now here is all that I've said in all these words in a nutshell. Note what God has done for you in Christ and look to him continually until you see him as preferable to all other things. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, there are some that are watching this this moment who have never known anything in their lives or other than just giving in to their desires. They've never known that they should choose your desires for them over their desires in the moment. And they are feeling guilty and lost. 
And I pray in Jesus' name, Lord God, that you would visit them and just reach out to them and let them know that at their point of desolation, you are there to offer them new life, true life, to offer them the opportunity to be born again. And if you are one of those uh, who is bowing at this time and saying, yes, that's me, I realize now I've never been born again, and I want to be. I just ask you to pray along with me. Lord Jesus, I'm tired of doing things my way. From now on, I ask that you forgive me of my sin in my past and give me a brand new life from this day forward. I pray, O oh Lord, that you will show me the life that you have for me to live and how to live it. I pray, O oh Lord, that you will just take away my lustful and evil desires and that you would help me to say no to them in the, in the future. Lord, I've been living my life for myself and serving myself, and I know now that I must serve you, and so I give my life to you. Thank you, Jesus. You died on the cross for everything that I've ever done wrong, every pain I've ever caused another person, every affront I've ever made against God. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. I give myself to you, and I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give me new life now. Thank you for the new life that you're giving me now. In Jesus' name, amen. And Father, for those that just prayed that prayer, I now pray that you would pour your Spirit upon them and uh, just uh, let them sense you know that that treasure that is your love and your presence in their life is greater than anything in this world. Let them sense that now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.